0: Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me voices. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Voices in Leadership series, focusing on the nexus of science and leadership to create positive change in the world of public health. I am Betty Johnson, and I have the unique pleasure to direct this program and to introduce our speaker. Today's speaker could never have imagined that his formative years in Alabama working on a farm would lead to his serving in multiple positions in the United States government. I speak of none other than Dr. David Satcher. A quote by Dr. Benjamin Mays, who at one time was president of Morehouse College in Atlanta and was a significant mentor to Dr. Satcher, epitomizes the steadfast ambition that today's speaker has embraced throughout his career and summarizes in simple terms his mantra to this day. It states, it must be borne in mind that the tragedy of life does not lie in not reaching your goal, the tragedy of life lies in having no goal to reach. Dr. Satcher is the founding director and senior advisor of the Satcher Health Leadership Institute, established in 2006 at the Morehouse School of Medicine. Its mission is threefold, to develop public health leaders, foster and support leadership strategies, and influence policy to eliminate racial and ethnic disparities in health. Dr. Satcher also serves as professor of community health and preventive medicine family medicine and psychiatry and was the founding director of the National Center for Primary Care an Academic Research Training and Resource Center focused on promoting excellence in community-oriented primary care and optimal health outcomes for all Americans. Prior to 2006, Dr. Satch's tenure of public service also included serving as director of the CDC. And simultaneously serving as the 10th Assistant Secretary for Health and the 16th Surgeon General of the United States. As Surgeon General, Dr. Satcher released numerous Surgeon General reports on diverse topics including sexual health, tobacco and health, obesity, and mental health. He has been a Macy Foundation Fellow, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Clinical Scholar, and a Senior Visiting Fellow of the Kaiser Family Foundation, all recognizing his long commitment to removing the stigma associated with mental illness. Dr. Satcher has received over 50 honorary degrees and numerous leadership awards and holds a BS degree from Morehouse College and MD and PhD degrees in cell biology from Case Western Reserve University. Before I turn this session over to Dr. Joan Reed, Dean for Diversity and Community Partnership at Harvard Medical School, who will conduct today's interview, Please join me in welcoming Dr. David Satcher to the Voices in Leadership series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health.
1: Good afternoon, Dr. Satcher. It's such a pleasure to to have this opportunity to speak with you today. and Hearing um, this wonderful history and journey on your, your leadership journey. I'm wondering if you could share with us a, a little bit about your early life experiences and how they help to both frame and to motivate us uh, in certain directions and paths and how you link that to the, to the path that you've chosen.
2: Well, thank you, Joan. I'm delighted to be with you. Um, I grew up uh, on a farm outside of Anniston, Alabama. Um, my parents had 10 children, two died early. Um, But I think, for me, it was a very severe illness Um, when I was two years of age. um, I guess it started with whooping cough and and, and pneumonia. And my parents had already lost a child about a year earlier to similar illness, so they made a major effort to get the uh, one black physician in Anderson to come out to the farm. That was Dr. Jackson, and he did. He came out on his off day and spent almost all day there from what I'm told. But he also warned my parents that he didn't expect me to survive this illness, but took the time to show them what to do to give me the best chance of surviving and, and being comfortable. And they must have done a great job. <laughs> <laughs> well, my mother told me this story almost every day. So by the time I was uh, five years old, because the one thing I wanted to do was meet Dr. Jackson. So they promised me that for my, for my 50th birthday, they were going to take me to town to meet Dr. Jackson. So I was really excited. I never met him. He he died that year at the age of 54 of a stroke. But then by the time I was six, I was telling everybody I was going to be a doctor, just like Dr. Jackson. And I meant it, and I knew that I was as sure of that as anything I've been in my life. So that was sort of how it started for me. My parents were great people. Neither one of them finished elementary school, but they were great parents. And much of who I am relates to that experience with them.
1: When you think about who you are in those experiences, but you also think about the times. and You mm-hmm. think about um, what it was like in Alabama, in rural Alabama at that time, and as you move forward to your time at Morehouse. Um, can you speak a little bit about how the times help shape who we are and, and the opportunities
2: yeah, we have? Yeah, because, you know, Dr. Well, Jackson, could not admit patients to the hospital in Amsterdam. They, they didn't take black patients, and certainly black physicians, he was the only black physician around, could not admit there. And that continued throughout the South you know, for many years. So I think the, the segregation discrimination certainly helped define my early years. I mean, not even being able to go in the store and buy an ice cream cone. Those were things that you had to come to accept because that's the way it was. And it was really not until I got to, to Morehouse College in Atlanta that I really got the opportunity for the first time to do what I would call confront racism. People like um, Marion Wright Ellerman, who went on to found Children's Defense Fund. They were upperclassmen, Otis Moss and others. They, they were leaders and I got involved in the student movement, went to jail. Uh, four times. I went to prison once, so following them, and of course, Martin Luther King Jr. and his brother, AD. So I was a serious student. I want to make that very clear.
0: Yeah. <laughs> very
2: serious student. I, I was determined to go to medical school, but I had to confront racism. It was the best opportunity that I would ever have, and so I took the risk of uh, doing it, even though I didn't know how it would affect my, my, my progress in school. And I was fortunate. I mean, not everybody who participated in the movement went on to finish school. And as you know, some people lost their lives. So it was a very serious movement, but it has a lot to do with who I am and what I stand for.
1: When, when I see that and you talk about being willing to take risk and take mm-hmm. a stand, um, I also think about a career of being first, of being a pioneer, of of being first in your class at, in high school to being one of three to graduate from that high school and going to college, uh, the first African-American to earn an MD and PhD from CASE, the first African-American at CDC, this being a pioneer. Um, what does it take to be a pioneer, and what, what, what did you how did you experience it and move through that?
2: Well, uh, to be honest with you, I never set out to be a pioneer. Uh, it, it happened because of uh, what I cared about. At the Satchel Health Leadership Institute at Moira School of Medicine, we have a saying, and it is that uh, in order to uh, eliminate disparities in health and to achieve health equity, we need leaders who first care enough. Then we need leaders who know enough, leaders who have the courage to do enough, and leaders who will persevere until the job is done. So with me, it started with caring, and, and caring about the problems that i had grown up with, caring about getting myself in a position where I could make a significant contribution to solving those problems. So I would say what came, what I came out of Alabama with was an unusual commitment to, to helping to solve those problems and making things better. And it was that commitment that drove me. Uh, I didn't set out to be the first black director of the CDC. In fact, I remember uh, when I was interviewed and and the press asked, how does it feel to be the first black director of the CDC? And I said, well, my goal was never to be the first director. It was to be the best director (laughs) that CDC ever had. And that was where I felt. I mean, but, um, but I guess also I was determined not to let race or somebody's bias stop me.
1: Can you talk a little bit about that time at CDC, about um, having this opportunity to to direct part of the agenda, to to address some of the issues around health equity and some of the work that you did, maybe around immunization or some of the other areas?
2: CDC was a great experience. I I still have just uh, great memories, great regard for my time at the CDC, and still have a very close uh, relationship. I served on the, I started the CDC Foundation in 1995, and that foundation, of course, has grown to be probably the most effective government-related foundation. Last year during the Ebola outbreak, the foundation raised over 50 million dollars in two weeks so that CDC could set up emergency operation centers. Um, I'm saying all that to say I had a great experience at the CDC. Uh, When we started, I believe childhood immunization was at 55% a lot of children not being immunized by the age of two. And we were able, with the help of a lot of people, including getting uh, Congress and the White House to remove the financial barriers, we were able to get those immunization levels up to greater than 80% and virtually eliminate disparities uh, in that area. I was, we were talking earlier, one of my greatest memories when I was director of the CDC was a part of the polio eradication effort. Uh, uh, in one week in India, we immunized over 100 million children in an effort to eradicate polio, and India was one of the countries that still had a lot of polio. And India today, of course, is polio-free uh, in terms of uh, children becoming infected. So I had some great experiences, I mean, uh, which I would trade for nothing. It's a great organization, great people, great experience.
1: A question I have is, you, have you done the work at CDC, and. and- Have you done this by yourself? Have others been a part of this journey?
2: Um, Others have been most of the journey. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) no, I, let me just say, when people ask me about leadership, I say the most important thing is to have a leadership team. Uh, If you fail in developing a strong leadership team, you're most likely going to fail at the job. So I have been very fortunate throughout my career to be able to uh, establish a strong leadership team. When I went to the CDC, uh, they had never had a woman to serve as the de- deputy director, never had a woman to serve as director of an institute. So looking around, I appointed Claire Broom, who was eight months pregnant, by the way, when I appointed her uh, to be my deputy, brilliant, anybody who knows the name Claire Broom knows about her work with toxic shock syndrome. So she became my deputy and just did an outstanding job. Helene Gill, a name that most of you probably know, um, was ultimately appointed to head the first institute at the CDC on HIV-AIDS and scd So um, I, um, to the extent that I have been successful in leadership roles, it has been because I've been successful at being able to appoint strong leadership teams and to really, now managing a leadership team is not easy. I mean, especially if they're good people, they have big egos, <laughs> and, um, which is why some people have trouble appointing strong people because they, they they get nervous about people who are strong, maybe stronger than you in certain areas. But it's a part of appointing a strong leadership team and managing that team. Um, so I've had some great experiences.
1: Wonderful. A flip side of that in the relationships, have there been people who have advised you or mentored
2: you as, as you've done this.
1: So you talk about building a team. Is there another part that you turned yeah. to?
2: Yeah, I, and that's been critical. You, uh, uh, I think Dr. Johnson mentioned Benjamin Mays. And Benjamin Mays was president of Morehouse College for 27 years. And every Tuesday morning, Benjamin Mays came to chapel. We had to go to chapel six days a week, by the way, but that's another story. But every Tuesday morning, Benjamin Mays was a speaker in chapel. And uh, I was pres- I've been president of three institutions. I still haven't figured out how Benjamin Mays could be there in chapel every Tuesday morning, but he was. And so I, I have a lot of uh, quotes from him. He was a major uh, inspiration to me. He was uh, a mentor to Martin Luther King Jr. And during the time that I was in Atlanta, of course, Martin Luther King Jr. moved to Atlanta to co-pastor Ebenezer Baptist Church. And friends and I used to walk to Ebenezer every Sunday when we knew that he was gonna be there to preach. We would walk to hear him preach. Uh, Now that was five miles each way. We didn't have cars, the students didn't have cars, back, but we walked. Um, Martin Luther King was an amazing uh, speaker. Uh, He was an educator, he was a motivator and he really mobilized people to act. That's what led to the Montgomery bus boycott, and that's what led to much of what we did. Um, He said, in essence, that until a person finds something for which he or she is willing to die, then uh, they're not fit to live. That was what I heard him say. Somewhere along the line, you've got to find something that's so important to you that you're willing to die for it, which means you're willing to give up your career and I've seen don't encourage students to be irresponsible, but what he was saying was, you know, there ought to be something in life that you care so deeply about that you were willing to take these kinds of risks. And um, he was amazing in his ability to mobilize people to act.
1: So as I think about this, this taking risks and as you move from CDC to being uh, Surgeon General, Assistant Secretary, uh, something that Julius Richmond had done before, mm-hmm. um, taking risks in that position and, and and using that as a bully pulpit to talk about some of the kinds of disparities in our country that hadn't been spoken of before. Can you talk about that period of time and some of your work there?
2: Well, let me first say a word about Julie Richmond. Uh, Julius Richmond uh, was an amazing human being, uh, an amazing pediatrician, public health leader, And he actually started the concept of Healthy People. In 1980, uh, Julie, uh, during the Carter administration, released Healthy People 90. It was the first time we had had a program to set goals and measurable objectives for the health of the American people in 10-year phases. Uh, But I think my personal relationship with Julius Richmond was very important to me. And he was a great friend, a great mentor. Uh, humble person. I mean, he doesn't get the kind of attention that some other people get because he was so uh, humble and he cared dearly about people. I will always appreciate that. Uh, I did have the opportunity as Surgeon General and Assistant Secretary for Health, and only Julie and I have occupied both of those positions simultaneously. So I had the opportunity to lead the development of Healthy People 2010, and it was in that Healthy People 2010 that for the first time uh, we uh, identified the goal of eliminating disparities in health. Now, I have to tell you, it was not the first time that we talked about disparities in health, but it had always been reduced disparities in health, and we would set one goal for one group of people, another goal for another group. And by the way, this is not just about race and ethnicity, which is why As Surgeon General, I released a report on mental health because people with mental disorders uh, have a life expectancy that is 25 years less than the rest of the population. So, as Surgeon General, that was one of my major efforts and reports uh, as as other areas. So, um, Healthy People 2010 for the first time said, we're committed to eliminating. And one word, eliminate, I think is what drew all of the attention to the goal of, of eliminating disparities in health. We just continued to say reduce and it never would have crossed uh, the radar. But I also will say, you know, later on I served on the World Health Organization's Commission on Social Determinants of Health. But when Dr. J.W. Lee who uh, was a Korean physician who was head of uh, WHO at that time, and I knew him from my work with polio, uh, when he called me about being on that commission, he pointed out that we have been aware of what you all have been doing in the United States in terms of eliminating disparities. And he said, I would really like to start a global program related to health equity. So I joined the Commission on Social Determinants of Health. Unfortunately, uh, JW never lived to see that report. He died of a stroke. He had a stroke, I think, a year later and died in surgery. But we owe a lot to him.
1: As you think about the, the health disparities, and you talked a little bit about what you've done, some of the work at CDC, uh, in your work at uh, in DHHS with Surgeon General and Assistant Secretary of Health, but also in the academic realm. We haven't talked about it as much. And you spent time at Drew and Morehouse and Meharry. And can you speak a little bit about the role of the Academy um, and in and, and education in addressing
2: issues around disparity and, and leadership? You know, it's interesting because I don't think I'm- met anybody who valued education more than my parents, neither of whom finished elementary school. Uh, but they were really concerned, when, whereas other people would keep their children out of school to work in the field, they made it very clear to us that school was our first priority. And teachers were heroes. So I didn't dare go home and complain about a teacher. Because for them, teachers were the heroes. We just had to get in line. Uh, so. I, tribute to them in terms of the whole academic thing, uh, something they never had an opportunity. But um, uh, I had an opportunity to, to be, as you mentioned, a fellow and all of that. Became president of Meharry in, ni- in 1982 and uh, served for 12 years. Uh, and I became president at a time when the when, uh, New York Times had just had an article, I believe, saying that Meharry was going to close. And I was, at that time, not interested in being a college president. And really some of my colleagues whom i worked without it drew, put my name on the list. So when they called me, I, I immediately said, no, I wasn't interested. And then these same friends, of course, made me feel very guilty, <laughs> said, you could at least go for the interview just out of respect for the institution. That's what Hank Foster said. And um, so I went. And I have to tell you that when I, the more I learned about Meharry, and about what it had contributed uh, in this country. At that time, it had, it had uh, educated 50% of the black physicians and dentists in the country, and uh, 75% of its graduates were, graduates were practicing on in underserved communities. So what I decided, and this has influenced most of my decision, that you know, I can't think of anything more important for me to do if I really care about these issues of access to health care for everybody and things like that so it was that is what led me to say yes to Maharry. and uh, there were many times when I wish I had not uh, <laughs> but uh, but it, it worked out I had a lot of help uh, the Robert Johnson Foundation where I first met Bob Blenden, mm-hmm. uh, you know responded to our proposal and uh, a lot of great memories from that period
1: so I thank you for that as, as we sort of learn about this journey um, and the multiple roles you played in this this consistent theme of addressing issues of health equity. And we look at where our country is now and where we need to go? Um, some thoughts, some pearls, some lessons for people who are interested in, in following in your footsteps and then leading into the future.
2: Well, uh, I'll go back again to our theme. I mean, I think uh, we ought to find something that we care enough about that we're willing not only to dedicate time and effort and study, but we're willing to sacrifice for it. And uh, and we ought to be guided by that in terms of what we do with our time and effort. Um, I have been motivated by my commitment, uh, by, so it's been sort of become a mission in terms of health equity. So I have responded to opportunities and challenges. If you ask me about how my plan for life has worked out, uh, it went out the window a long time ago. Uh, And I started saying yes to things because they were consistent with what I valued and what I cared about. And so that's what's led me uh, to where I am now. It's not the plan, not a design. And I have to tell you, every day I get students coming to see me. They want to to know, how did you plan to be Surgeon General? And they're always disappointed when I tell them, (laughs) well, I didn't plan to be Surgeon General. I mean, I was on the way somewhere, and I was doing the best I could when I was on the way somewhere, and that opportunity came up. And many times, uh, I said no the first time and thought about it later.
1: I thank you. Thank you for all you've done and continue to do um, in advancing health equity and serving our country. Thank you. Thank you,
2: Joan. It's great to be with you.
0: This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.